Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the I don't even know what word to use this week because boy, this is going to be a special episode. Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Hey. What's the haps? I mean, I'm totally relaxed because what I did during, well, I mean, relaxed. I had an easier time than you did. Uh, what I did, the big thing I did was I went and saw the Barbie movie, which is phenomenal. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's one of those cinematic achievements. Like, seriously, I'm not kidding. That, like, I can't believe they made a movie that's that funny and that poignant and relevant and and gets you to think about all kinds of underpinnings of society. I I mean, wow. I was really, really impressed. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Uh, but, and so the rest of my weekend was just kind of doing the usual stuff. And I got proper rest and sleep. What did you do? I went to Gen Con. I did not get proper rest or proper sleep. I got home last night at about 7 p.m. and said, I'm going to take a little nap uh, before dinner. And then woke up at about 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, so let's just say dinner or any proper thing did not happen. Yeah. It was It was a huge show. They haven't released the numbers yet, but they sold out of badges and someone told me that they sold out of events so that every single ticket of every single event was sold. The, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was told. Wow. Uh, so I mean, even if it's with, not with entirely true, it just tells you that it's at that level of, of wow, that's incredible. Oof. It felt that way. I mean, Gen Con felt and, huge and, before it yeah. started. Like, yeah. like it was... A storm just right. gathering and breaking and yeah hmm. yeah and uh, i've spent more time at a booth i i'd i'd been at booths for 20 minutes or right helping someone out or hey could you watch the booth while that sort of thing i was in the booth for several hours for multiple days and so that was a new experience for me to sort of see the madness instead of being within the madness mm-hmm. if you will but then I spent the most time at meetings that I've ever spent at. Uh, and these were meetings where like important things, life things were happening. Wow. Right. So I'm like, then, then I'm going back to the, the room at night already late going, okay, I'm going to sit here and do math with my head for the next five hours. Oh, look, it's 8, 8 AM. And I have a meeting in a half an hour. Let's do, and let's do that. Let's do it all again. So it was it was one of those shows. Very little gameplay happened. Mm. Lots of lots of meetings happened. So, uh, but we'll have a little bit of news uh, coming from Gen Con here uh, coming up. So, did you have any specific questions? No, I mean that sounds fascinating. I mean, I have a million questions, but that that sounds fascinating. And I've had some conventions that were like that. I generally try to really like play and DM hard at cons and, and reserve mm-hmm. meetings for sort of small focused areas, but it is exciting. And, and it is hard because you're on, even if you're with friends that you know, that you've worked with in these kinds of meetings a lot, you're still trying to represent the game, whoever you're mm-hmm. kind of theoretically representing in addition. Um, yeah, it's exhausting. So hats off to you, my friend, for, for going through that. That's a lot. You deserve a lot of rest, <laughs> but let's make a podcast. Oh, I, well, I got a lot of rest last night but here we go let's do this Mm -hmm. and we're going to start as we always start with our listener corner quite a few this week again so thank you for everyone who's listening who 
brings us your questions, whether it's via Blue Sky now or Twitter or X or tw X Twitter or Twitter X or whatever, uh, Patreon, whatever you use, keep them coming. Um, first, we have Kurt Ugel via YouTube, one that I didn't mention. Do you know the origin of the design choice for the varied levels and amount of subclass features? Was this part of D&D Next? I find the erratic structure baffling. For example, a paladin has a fourth subclass feature at level 20, but many end at 14. Fighter has five, which is the most, and the bard only has three, which is the least. So, audience, what is the optimal subclass spread and amount of features? Should one D&D add more? And then... He goes forward, Kurt does, and gives us the breakdown of each level of a subclass and what they get a feature at. And so thank you for that question. And I mean, it's a great question, very detailed and lots of, yeah. uh, unfortunately, the, the answer is very simple, which is the designers wanted to give something to players at every level. And so they create a class that gives a certain amount of, let's call them class abilities at specific levels. Then they look and say, oh, we don't have something to give the fighter at 3, 7, 10, 15, and 18. So when we build our subclasses, that's where we will put things. The bard gets spells. A new level of spell, they obviously consider a new class ability. So bards have these things. They get them here, there. Oh, we only have three levels where we need to give the bard something. That happens to be at 3, 6, and 14. So in order to keep all of the subclass uh, granting levels something new, you wouldn't have to go through... Uh, at the same levels, then you would have to go back and design all the classes <laughs> to give something at all the same levels, which is a magnitude of order harder than just, you know, readjusting things a bit and then using the subclasses to fill in those blanks. And then the question is, do we really need to give the players something at every level? Mm -hmm. Because the, if you didn't need to do that, then it would make this a lot simpler and a lot easier to unify. And now I'm going to sit down and let Teos add his thoughts. In my day, Sean, they didn't give us anything when we leveled. We liked it. We liked it fine. <laughs> we got hit points. That's yeah. all we needed. That's all we needed. We played all day. We were sad, but we played. No. Um, you know, I think that there <laughs> is uh, there's another aspect to this, which is that Subclasses are replacing the prestige classes and paragon paths and epic mm -hmm. uh, destinies, whatever they were called. Epic, epic destinies. Destiny, yep. Yeah. Of third and fourth edition. And they're trying to do it in a way that feels more like the class and less like go to this other section of the book and choose a thing, which felt a little disconnected at times. So by to do that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, this is all one thing. A fighter is like this, and it feels like a fighter. What does a fighter do? Well, it takes a lot of little training things. So the subclasses are going to reflect that, right? And maybe the bard, yeah, your, most of your stuff is really about your spells and your core class thing. So we're just going to add a few touches here and there. And that was probably a fine plan at the beginning. When Kurt says, you know, what should it be? It, uh, open question, right? It depends on what you want your class design to achieve. I think that if we look at what were the probable goals of this system, we can, after many years of 5e play, see that 
in general, it's really hard to get a subclass's flavor to feel strong enough early enough. Uh, you play for so few levels that when you get your main feature at third, fifth level, you might be about to retire your campaign at that point and your character. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you didn't get to experience all yeah. these later things. So if you have things that are later on in the cycle, you know, maybe they need to add to the things you got earlier, which we'll touch on a later question, versus be new things, new aspects, new expressions, because you, you otherwise don't ever get to have those. Um, the other thing that we saw with with um, when they went into doing um, uh, Strixhaven was that they wanted to say, hey, everybody gets a uh, a subclass that is your school that you're studying. And then they realized, well, this is a really big problem because not everybody gets it at the same level and has the same progression. What do we do about that when you've got an adventure of level X? And so that's kind of part of the reason that led them to think, gee, you know, maybe we did the wrong thing when we both buried the starting level and the progression. Now, of course, since then in Unearthed Organa, Jeremy has said that maybe we do want to always start at third but change when you get it to again reflect that class. I, I don't know. I don't. I tend to think that standardizing is better. I tend to think that probably you are better off just as a designer knowing that hey, I hang my hat on the following levels is when you express a subclass, and the class works around that rather than the subclass fitting into the class. But I don't know how you feel about it or what you think of all this. Yeah. It. It's what do you want the game to be is, is the question. What do you want the game to be? Because you can do, do it X number of ways where X is a large positive integer. You can do it many, 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 many different ways. And what you have to do is go back to the beginning and say, how do we want this experience to play out at the table? How do we want this experience to play out as people build their characters? Do we want to make it a very complicated process of building your character to make it fun for people away from the table? And then they'll have fun at the, at the table no matter what. Right. Or do you say, we want to make it as simple as possible to build the character and let that fun play out at the table? It, it really goes into the next question, which I'm going yeah. to read right now. Yeah. Which is, from it's from Jack of Hearts 42 via YouTube. What are your thoughts on TTRPG characters gaining more, many more tools and abilities at higher levels versus gaining expanding use of earlier abilities? How do you think it impacts the complexity and thus aversion of high-level play in D&D? I see heroes in other media just getting better and better at what they start out knowing how to do. And, that, and that's a great question. That yeah. goes to what I just said. What do you want the game to be like? Do you want the game to be a fighter, which is you're good at hitting things with your sword. And so at higher levels, you're good at hitting things with your sword four times. Mm -hmm. Or do you want it to be your spellcaster? And at low levels, you can make this little tiny flame that does damage. And at large, higher levels, you can make really big flames that do more damage. Or is it that you want the spellcasters to be able to do 72 different things, all completely different, as opposed to four things that are completely different at first level? Yeah. What you need to look at is, does the complexity that you create add to the fun of the game? Because as the complexity goes up, enjoyment may go down for a significant portion of your player base. 
So the rising complexity needs to have a corresponding rise in the fun of the game. And if the complexity rising leads to falling fun, then you need to lower the level of the complexity to marry to the increasing but more slowly increasing fun that a majority of your players are going to have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean absolutely. Like it's it's um it's a fascinating choice because it affects so much and we'll see in in more like um in other simpler role playing games in OSR style D&D games you see where it really is more of the like you have a ball of flame you chuck and as you gain more points levels whatever you get to do more often or harder right more flamer <laughs> and right. and that's that's all it is and and there is just flame like the wizard is flame right D&D tries to do many more things and has many more source books and can can give you more options so therefore it doesn't lock itself into flame ball only it lo- it it has more variety because it knows it needs to have that space to express itself and and then we see those things like subclasses that can really vary in their approach but yes they have to answer these questions that you're talking about Sean because if you spread it too thin and we see that i mean some of the Tasha's subclasses can have some things that it's like well, you've got a tentacle that attacks for you, and here's what it does, and it'll and that'll show up again. But you also have this other thing and this other form, and 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 that's a. It, it's not, I'm not saying it's wrong. It, it's just that is what it's fighting. It's fighting that question of should I be doing all like I have a tentacle and that's my story, or is it I am far realm and here are these varying different expressions that tell that story. Mm-hmm. One of which is a tentacle. One of which is a what you know. And those are hard questions. It, it really is. You have to. It's, it's something to keep in mind when you're designing, because it can feel less attractive. And one last thing, which is that as a mm-hmm. player, getting a little more damage to your ball of flame can be cool. Certainly can be great from an optimization standpoint, but it can be less interesting and attractive. Whereas if you're going to get a different feature, that may call to you more and, and want you to get to those levels more so. And then the question is, does D&D support that? Because often the campaign ends when it's going to end and not because you wanted to get to be higher level. Right. Because no matter what all of these things are, no matter what, uh, whether it's the ball of flame getting bigger or having this wide menu of things that you can do, you still get one action, one bonus action, one reaction. And so (laughs) while a player may look at a subclass or look at a class or look at any sort of role-playing game and how this progression works and say, oh, that's so boring. All I'm doing is adding a D6 every level. Uh, that may be the best thing for the game. Yeah, yeah. It may not be attractive while you're reading through the class. It, you may say, well, I want I want more options. or I w-. It may not be the best thing for the game. Uh, so... Yeah. And, and you're that, always weighing those things as a designer. And I just want to emphasize that that what you're saying is that when we try to create feel, we can try to want to use up all these possible reactions every round. And we see that in Tasha's. Mm-hmm. Tasha starts making these classes that it's not just because you're a rogue and you're doing this reliable thing. It's like really filling, trying to express the class through every possible action, meaning the player expects to use those actions every single turn sometimes choosing from a menu of them and they can be very complex and that requires a lot of tracking. It slows play. It may sound great on paper, but as you play it, you start getting exhausted by ring. We've talked about that before. Right. 
And, and one thing that you could do then as a designer is say, rather than giving the choices at the table, I can give them the choices while they're creating. So you've just reached 17th level. Here are five things that you can choose. Mm. Once you choose it, though, that's yours. And that can seem good. And sometimes it works well. But then if there was an optimal choice or if there was a choice that the player didn't realize they wanted, then that becomes, oh. I should have done that. <laughs> and, you know, so that's that takes away the flexibility that some players want. While so you're weighing that as well if you choose to go that direction. It's mm. it's a complicated thing, and I'm glad I'm not making uh a full-on game at this point in my totally. life. Yeah. So kudos. Uh anything else to add for Jack of Hearts 42 on that question? Nope. Okay, then we will move on to, oh, we've gone up by one. We have Rush Bolt 43 via YouTube. So we've gone from 42 to 43. Uh, I've been told following the Tales of the Valiant, I'm sorry, I've been following the Tales of the Valiant progress and purchased the Alpha release. The Alpha still only contains five levels for four classes. Cobalt Press has also released some material on the Druid and Ranger to its backers. With the physical books due in April of 2024, I feel nine months is not enough time to complete testing and feedback on spells, class features, feats, monsters, etc. At some point, I feel Cobalt Press may need to abandon releasing changes to the public for feedback to meet the deadline. Do you think small companies like Cobalt Press should avoid public playtests due to the extra work needed to release them and review the feedback? Or is the marketing value of having a public playtest worth the effort, even if it greatly increases the difficulty in releasing the project on time? As two people that are familiar with deadlines, I feel you may both be able to provide insight on this process I may not have considered. Thank you for all that you do to entertain and educate the community. Thank you, Rushbolt43. That question is so good that I'm going to let Teos answer it. Um, I think spot on Rushbolt's just killing it with saying, Hey, marketing value. I mean, that's, yeah, you want to get the rules, right. But in theory, you can get enough designers in a room and come up with great ideas. Um, the public play test, I think is really largely about, especially for, for a smaller company, a public play test is about marketing and fan integration less so than it is when you are at the D&D level. It's still those things, but also you can fail to capture the wide variety of players that are out there. I'm not sure that Tales of the Valiant has the same breadth of players and, and needs to have the same breadth of players. It can find uh, fans that really want to do X or Y and be a great game. D&D, uh, &D, mm -hmm. if it really wants to be enormous, as it usually is, it wants that kind of benefit that the D&D &D Next play tests provided. Um, so I think the marketing value yeah. is a big part of this. And that's why we probably see that there is, you know, finally the Kickstarter and the alpha version, and probably we'll see fewer of those uh, releases. Uh, and then just one other thing, and I'll shut up and let you go, uh, Sean, but that is that I do think all of these companies uh, are, are working under too short a time to create a game. But at some point, I don't know that any length is good enough. Like it's just, you know, role-playing games are going to be imperfect. 
and the company has at some point say, well, how much longer do I give this when I would like to start making money from this product? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you have a smaller, as Teos wisely said, when you have a smaller pool of fans that you need to um, satisfy, you can do so much more quickly. Cobalt Press, you name the company, Ghostfire Gaming, anyone can succeed by having a pool of X, right? 20,000, 30,000 fans. We, we can make good stuff for them. Wizards of the Coast and D&D needs to satisfy millions of fans to really succeed. So uh, it's going to be a different process. And as Teos also said, no matter the amount of playtesting that you do, you're going to miss things. Mm -hmm. um, so marketing is important. Gathering the information you need to know what kind of game your fan base wants is is as important as hammering out every single mathematical detail uh, in the long run, because mm. that information, what, as we've talked about with the previous two questions, what kind of game do you want? We can give you the kind of game you want. We need to know what that is. And then we can tweak those numbers to, to make it or the amount of content we can tweak to make it work. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next, we have Toast Milk via Patreon Discord. I was going to say 44 just to keep the number going, but <laughs> we ran out there. We only go up to 43 on this show. Darn shame. Uh, I come from a cre yeah, I come from a creative arts background and training. In my years as a student and since and studying art, the one rule that has borne out to be the most accurate about any creative endeavor is that you have to know the rules in order to break them. Amen. In other words, rules are meant to be broken, and creativeness is a lot of experimentation, but breaking the rules just to break them is why we have a lot of things like bad freeform poetry. Mm -hmm. One needs to have an intention and an awareness of what you are going against to make it work and what keeps creative acts fresh. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what your thoughts are as game designers and if that is applicable to the world of TTRPG design. Given how thoughtful you both are with the questions you are asked, I know it would be helpful to someone like myself to hear those considerations and help even inexperienced folks become better at the choices we make at the table in prepping sessions or determining what is best the best system to run to meet our players' expectations. Teos? Yeah. Well, you know what I think of is, is that God, how wonderful is it when you are at the stage, as I've always been my entire life, that I can write bad poetry and be super happy with it, you know, or, or as happy as I would be if I had, I think that if I got better at poetry, then I would have to really play by rules and maybe I would enjoy it less or something like that. Like I, I like my level of imperfection with poetry and I like how, how so many poems just seem great to me and I don't know why they are or aren't uh, because I am no expert at poetry. Um, and to some extent, games have that duality in that the designers have to create ideally really good games that really follow their rules and understand their rules and, and break them in very specific ways so that their material can be taken by DMs and broken in any which way, regardless of whether they understand whether it's right or wrong or whatever. And that's something kind of beautiful mm. about our hobby that that can happen. Mm. What do you think, Sean? Art, yeah, 
bringing this up as an artistic thing, you know, coming from the same sort of background, I I totally see where Toast Milk is coming from here. Um, yes, you should learn the rules, and then you should should break them with abandon, with abandon as you understand what you're doing. It's it's the old saying that art is the process and not the product. They say that because you learn the process, you get the product at the end of it, and now you know the process that you can tweak. So in that sense, I, I love that idea of, of knowing the process in order to do the process differently. We also have to remember that role-playing games are both art and machines. So these machines have a function. Things go in one end, something happens, think a story comes out the other. And so with that also, you need to be able to know how to build the machine before you can replace the parts on the machine to get a different outcome. Uh, we're going to move this cog here and put this cog in and, oh, look, it's still going to work, but we're going to get a different outcome from the machine. And that, I think, is more even more important than the art thing. It's the machine thing. Mm. It's the, well, we're just going to completely ignore backgrounds in my game. Okay, cool. What is your start? How do you get your starting equipment then? Uh, right. How right. You're, are you just going to ignore the two other skill proficiencies that you would get? Right? Those those things. And or we're going to replace backgrounds with this thing that gives all of this. Well, now you're creating this uh, something that's even more important than your class. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And how are you going to balance that out? Uh, so those those are the sorts of things that that Toast Milk is talking about, yeah. and you can you can transfer it from from art to science to from art to craft from you know, however you want to quantify or qualify the different aspects of a role playing game. But yes, it it's never a bad idea to learn the rules yeah. to learn the 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 process before you start to try to break the process. Absolutely. However, you can create a fun one-page role-playing game on an index card where you roll a D6 and just start telling stories based on the answer. Yeah. And that's still a process. That's still a a rule that, that you're learning, but you're starting with less of a, comp a complicated machine that you can mess around with. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that when you are when you are in the business of creating something that's more professional, that's going to go to other people, then these things really weigh heavily, right? You want to think through what it is. You want to know what's what DMs expect. If you're writing an adventure, for example, what are DMs expecting to see structure wise? What are they expecting in terms of um, what uh, where what information will be in which place and what order? Uh, so that it runs well, right? Mm -hmm. Breaking those expectations can be very difficult. But what you can do is break expectations around what an encounter does or how monsters mm -hmm. behave or what kind of things the characters can do in a scene. And breaking those kinds of expectations and rules can be great because those things provide really new experiences and stimulate the DM and give the DM lots of ideas. So I often try to break mm -hmm. things when I'm designing adventures knowing they may fail a bit and they may not work for every DM, but for mm -hmm. some DMs, 
they'll create lots of really good ideas, right? So things like, what if the dungeon moves, right? Different parts of it move in different ways. It's not static. Uh, what if the NPCs are moving uh, during the entire adventure, right? Things like that are really cool ideas. And when you see them and, and, and play with those ideas and break those sorts of expectations and rules, you can come up with some really cool stuff, sometimes with bad poetry. For sure, for sure. But it's also important, as Teo said, to understand how the game works, how to understand what the, the DM needs to have in order to break it in a way that still allows this process to play out um, in yeah. in some way. Yeah, for sure. In some way. Last question. This isn't a question, but we're just going to share this thought from Dr. Nick uh, via Patreon. I've just listened to the horror segment of your podcast, and I wanted to throw in my two bits. From a psychological perspective, I'm a psychologist. I'm not, Dr. Nick is. Horror is weird. It's a technical term. It provokes stress responses that humans find to be negative, but people like it. Two things pop out. One, is a body a thing? And two, is a brain a thing? And he uses the terms transfer of arousal and benign masochism. So good and bad body stress are the same thing. So if you get stress one way, like a jump scare, sexy vibes, whatever, it transfers to anything else that happens. If something scary happens and then something funny happens, the funny thing is funnier. So some scary stuff makes flatter content feel more intense. Benign masochism, I promise I'm getting to the point says Dr. Nick, is a theory that people like to experience negative emotions as a form of inoculation to real emotions and stress. Your body has the same experience in a car accident that it does on a roller coaster, but you are safe and in control on the roller coaster, so it's fun. Horror and danger in games are a great example of safe danger. And I... Who am yeah. I to argue with a psychologist? It's really neat. And I, I continue to really love the discussion that, that's taking place uh, on our Patreon. So thanks, everybody, for, for those discussions. Yep. And, and thank you, Dr. Nick. Now we get to our news and commentary. We start with the good news. Giants of the Starforge, you can claim a free D&D adventure from D&D Beyond. It's uh, an adventure from Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants, serving as a... Uh, the adventure from Big B Presents serves as a preview to this adventure, which is for 16th level characters. So if you've been asking for high level content, here is some high level content for you. You can you should claim it now as these free things tend to disappear rather quickly uh, on D&D Beyond. We have a link in the show notes and you can also claim free digital dice and character sheets themed to the Baldur's Gate 3 video game. Yeah, and uh, just Sean, came an email, and we also have a link. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say for that first part, um, that 16th level adventure is has been said it will be AL legal, and all of the material from oh, Glory okay. of the Giants will be AL legal uh, in terms of player character mm -hmm. options. Okay, so if you are an Adventures League player, that is news for you. You now have AL legal high level content, which is even rarer than high level content. So if you want those freebies, you can go to D&D Beyond, link in our show notes to get to it. So that was the good news. 
A little bit of controversial news came out during uh, Gen Con. Some people noted that some of the art previews for Glory of the Giant showed indication that a couple pieces might have been AI generated. There is a art for the Frost Giant Ice Shaper. Now, this broke while I was at Gen Con. I only heard bits and pieces of it. Yeah. I'm going to let Teos take over here. Sure. So the, the artist um, has worked for D&D for some time. Uh, and of course, as with all books, this was art that was generated you know, some time ago in the process. Um, and the artist has publicly said many times uh, that they do AI work. They like NFTs and crypto and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and has a reputation for those kinds of stances. And they confirmed that they used AI in the process to generate this work. And, you know, unfortunately, it sounds like maybe they used AI not just as a tool, but almost as an accelerator to get past sort of the sketches they were given, like maybe taking the sketches they were given to modify them. It's, it's not entirely clear from reading this, but they deleted their initial posts uh, saying that. I guess through Wizards, they've heard that illustrations will be reworked. And Wizards then, after all this pressure started happening in various social media locations, uh, and despite the team being off at Gen Con, which I feel very bad for them having to deal with all this, uh, Wizards did say that they were unaware of this and unaware of the artist's reputation, uh, and that they are going to be clarifying their artist guidelines in response to this, which is really an oversight because Magic the Gathering already has these guidelines in place, so I don't know why Wizards would not have had it. And and a lot of the these articles, so it, and it, this appeared on the AP Newswire, it appeared in Fortune, as you noted here, Sean. Uh, Gizmodo, of course, has an article. It's being talked about all over the place. Um, the other part of this is one that that seems to get lost in, in all of this discussion that focuses on this first part, but. A different artist, April Prime, said on the same day that her art appears in the book, even though she's not credited in the book, and that her art has been modified, AI modified is the claim, by a different person or artist who is credited in the book. And I haven't heard that being addressed. I presume that this is because somebody's trying to resolve this in the background, and, and they'll we'll get to hear what the outcome of this is. But But that part concerns me a lot more, right? Yes, you should have a policy about whether you are going to allow AI tools or not in your work and to what extent. But the idea that an artist wouldn't even know that their work is modified by AI, like April Prime's, um, uh, I forget if it was their Blue Sky, I think it's their Blue Sky account says uh, that they do not use AI, right? So this is a stance they've taken. So then to have somebody modify her work with AI, I mean, that's really not cool. Um, it's very problematic. So I'm curious to see whether this where this comes out further on. I, I think we've also heard that they're going to update the art in the book, but of course that would be once it gets printed for new prints for those who are using print copies. What do you think, Sean? It's it's a it's a multifaceted issue that here here's here's what it comes down to um for me it's if i was at wizards what what would i do right if there is an individual i can point to who was the problem they would be taken care of 
-hmm. But for an issue like this, where you have a contract with an artist, now I had heard that the contract that the artist had signed said they would not use AI. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But if it's a case where the contract said you do not submit AI generated art and someone does, who, who is, who are you firing? (laughs) Are we firing the art director? It's, it's, it's fine to get outraged, right? It's fine to express your opinion, step into the shoes of the boss who gets fired. Are you going, are you person who is raging on, on Twitter going to walk in and fire someone who has, you know, two kids and a mortgage? Who, who are you firing? Um, if, if, if you can do that, then great. That's, that's the level where I, I put these things. Now, if somebody at wizards is, is taking someone else's art, changing it, putting it in the book and not crediting that person, right? There's all these questions of, does this make sense? And and that's where I was at the convention, right? Someone said, oh, Wizards used AI in their book, AI art in their book. I was like, oh, it's terrible. They shouldn't do that. And then like, no, they didn't know it was AI art. Some some artists had put it in. I was like, okay, well, that's the artist's fault. Maybe maybe it should have been vetted better. Okay, well, whose fault's that? I don't know. But then it was like, well, no, they only used AI to finish their piece. It was all of their own work. They just, I was like, okay, well, if that's the case, then that's okay because I use a spell checker. So that that's, oh no, that's not the case was the next thing I heard (laughs) that they actually did use AI to, right? So it was this back and forth and with every bit of information that was added, it was, okay, that's a completely different thing. Oh, no, no, okay, now that's a completely different thing. Oh, what I heard before wasn't true. So now that's it. It's, it's. I think Wizards has come out and said, we are not going to use AI art or any AI text or otherwise. Great. That's what I need to hear. The next step is Wizards, tell me, how are you going to make sure that happens? Maybe you can't. Maybe Maybe none of us can. Maybe if we were running a game company that maybe if we are involved in a game company, we are dealing with that same issue. And there is no perfect way. No. We're going to create and we're going to buy an AI finding machine. Oh, no. people are now by have a machine that will get around the AI finding machine. Oh, what do we do next? Right. It's I want to make games. I want people to have fun at the table. I don't want to have mm-hmm. any more either fake or real outrage. Yeah. Unless we can point that outrage and fix the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you and I have talked about this a lot of times. At the end of it, you know, solving a specific case is never as important as setting in the policy policies in place that can prevent future problems, right? And there are, it is complicated, as you said, because I recall at least two different uh, uh, Dragon Talk podcasts where the art director would, or someone involved in the art pro, art team would talk about, you know, we received the art from the person and there may not be enough time to request a change. So we may make a change. We may crop it, of course. Mm-hmm. We may change the color in the background to fit a sudden change in color palette, right? We may do any number of these things. Mm-hmm. And you know what gets complicated is if you then give someone's art to another artist that isn't on staff that may use tools that you're not okay with, That's and, and that the original artist is not okay with, that's a problem 
you know, unless your contract very clearly spells that out. So my guess yeah. is that there is a break here in the process. And what they really need to do is go back and fit that, fix yeah. that process. It's probably less about this specific case right. and more about, you know, what is it that they want mm -hmm. to have uh, to prevent these issues? Yeah. I missed the beginning of your thing because of a technical issue, yeah. but I'm going to, I caught the end. So I'm going to ask you a question then. You and I have turned in work to Wizards and to other companies, written work, which was then taken and completely changed, words changed, whole things changed. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always okay with someone changing it, even to something I don't like. I don't know that I would love them to use okay. AI to do it. Sure. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. I agree with that. So, so we're saying it's it's not okay to use AI to change the art, but it's okay for another artist to change the art. I I think that the reality of the process is that that's what has to happen, right? That that you may in any creative work you may hire someone to do something, and they may get you ninety percent of the way there, and either because of timing or just their capabilities, you may need to do that 10% yourself or have someone else do that 10%. And so I think that's just the way it, okay. it has to be. Right. Now, is there a level at which point it's not okay? Is that you wrote this, you wrote or drew this, this scene, we're going to take this piece of it, mm -hmm. which we love, but we need to change everything in the background um so we're going to change that now we're still going to credit you or do we well i don't know yeah i mean so i think that's where do you send it back and say create the new yeah yeah i don't know i i think that's where i would say i don't know that i need a policy for that like yes i would ideally like the directors product managers etc to keep these things in mind right if you're going to take the text of an adventure i wrote or a subclass and you're going to just really make it unrecognizable we should probably have a conversation, right? If you think I may not like the end result, maybe we should talk, you know? Just at least to set my mind at ease as a creator, right? Even if you have the full permission to do so contractually, we should probably have that conversation. I think where this gets particularly difficult is because of we're talking about artists and we're talking about AI at a time when AI is on one hand, a really cool tool that could make part of your process better. And on the other hand, mm -hmm. what companies will use to eradicate your ability to make an income mm -hmm. because capitalism, sure. capitalism will drive the companies mm -hmm. to seek the cost of inputs down to zero. So the end goal is always right. going to be have no artists whatsoever, right? Like that just, if you can press a button yeah. and create the art, you will because capitalism, like that's what we're being driven to. So mm -hmm. anything that is involved in the chain of making the AI use commonplace is another step towards that necessary end goal of, of lowering costs, right? We're currently in a place where like when, when Magic the Gathering art is created, premium prices are paid, right? And generally you can see that mm -hmm. an artist mm -hmm. goes from like charging X for commissions to an enormously higher why after they become a Magic the Gathering artist because mm -hmm. they now have that capability to demand a high price. The reverse could happen with mm -hmm. AI, right? To where they now yeah. can't yeah. get good income because most companies out there would say, well, as we see already with people creating DMs Guild products or drive-through products that just go, 
I'm not going to hire anybody for art, and I'm not going to use free art that's out there. I'm going to AI generate it and be done with it because a lot of people out there can't tell the difference. And I don't, yep. I'm not concerned about the livelihood of everybody else involved in the chain. I'm just taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to a bit of news. We're going to skip ahead just a bit to Kickstarter updating its AI policy. Uh, last week we reported that uh, the DMs Guild and OBS and Roll20 have a new AI policy prohibiting products that are all AI and requiring disclosure on the use of AI assets. Kickstarter now has a policy starting at the end of August requiring this same disclosure. Uh, it will ask project creators questions during project setup and any AI used in the product will be reviewed and then will be put into a use of AI section. Uh, products de uh, developing AI tools or tech must now disclose how the AI is trained. And we have a link in our show notes to that new Kickstarter policy. Let's move on from the AI version <laughs> of the show to <laughs> some, some good news. The Any Awards were held at Gen Con on Friday night, as they always are. Of course, the Ennies are first uh, judges pick from a group of submissions for each category. Those judges then create a list of nominees, and then those nominees are voted on via popular vote. And they're, they were there. I did not go. I did not see them. I actually have no idea who won what, so I'm getting my news directly from Teos. Hey, sure. Uh, you know what it was good to be is Free League. Uh, Free League had so hmm. many wins, I may not be able to say them all in one breath. Let's try. Product of the Year with Bassin <laughs> RPG, Best Adventure, Best Interior Art, Best Cartography, Best Layout and Design, Best Monster Adversary, Best Setting. Wow. I'm curious whether anyone has won yep. this many in the past, especially gold. Um, so hats off to Free League. Yeah. I mean, That's... I've heard that Free League gets... Um, funds from the Swedish government, as I forget what, what the term of it is, but, but that enabled them to basically have a production value, va um, value unlike any other. At the same time, they clearly take whatever those funds are and they make the most of it. I mean, they are gorgeous products. And so a yeah. lot of these are, are not really shocking because yes, they're interior art, cartography, layout and so on, but they're also creating product of the year, best monsterversary, best setting. That That's really impressive. Nice. Pelgrane Press uh, did win gold for best writing and two silvers for Swords of the Serpentine uh, by friend of the show, Kevin Culp, who we had on to talk about gumshoe systems. Mm -hmm. Radiant Citadel got a silver for best adventure. Uh, Avatar Legends was the gold winner for best family game and best rules. The Root RPG Quick Start was best free product. Uh, you 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 carried on from here. Yeah, best game was the Fabula Ultima Core rulebook. Best online content was Linda Codega's io9 reporting. Best organized play was gold to Under the Cover of Stars, are Marik Montalvan and Jens Sunquist, and silver to Cat's Paws by Jason Co. So both or uh, Adventures League adventures. In fact, the whole submission was Adventures League. We've talked about this before about it swings back and forth what this category is. Um, Seth Scork. Kovsky won gold for best podcast, silver going to How We Roll. Blackbird's RPG by Andrews McNeil Publishing won best production values gold. Um, and we've got in our show notes the whole 
uh, the link to all of them so you can see all of them or go to any-awards.com. Um, yeah, it's, you know, we have mixed feelings about awards and all that, but it's always nice to see some companies get recognition um, and hopefully it leads to people finding new games and thinking about games in different ways. Yep. Congratulations to the nominees and the winners and anyone who makes role-playing games. It's all, it's all, it's all good. Let's finally get to our crowdfunding uh, section. We had to skip it last week because we had so much news, but we can talk about it now, where the Storytelling Collective is raising scholarships for aspiring TTRPG creators. Um, Storytelling Collective runs the RPG workshop courses to teach new role-playing game designers the ropes. These scholarships will be used to help those who cannot otherwise attend. Um, you can donate at the $70 level. Though that money will be used for the scholarships, and you will get in return various digital benefits like 22 map packs, 10 art packs, 10 soundtracks, and several adventures. Um, the campaign had a, an artificially low goal, and now it's looking, it's met that goal and is looking more, for more funds to, to provide more scholarships. And I did speak to one of the people involved with this, and they confirmed that some of the art packs, um, and I forget what something else, uh, are available as um, for creators to use. So there, there are some commercially usable things here. So if you're a creator and you're looking for mm -hmm. things like art packs, um, the $70 level isn't only giving something beneficial to others. You could then use some of these things in future products. So it's even more worth it. Nice. Uh, we have MCDM launching Where Evil Lies, the Book of Boss Battles. It's 22 drop-in dungeons with dynamic combat encounters for 5th edition of D&D. Uh, you can get two layers for free at the Backer Kit page. Uh, the backers of the recently released Free Mortals Monster Book receive the PDF for free and get a discount on the hardcover version when it is released. And all of that will be available on Backer Kit link in our show notes i think it's and tell me this lives. little bit of uh, what i say lives <laughs> it's okay we're evil did i say lives I mean, well, they're yeah evil like james and tracasso we're evil <laughs> lives yeah, for sure and uh give us this last bit of bizarre news oh, about yeah. this uh anonymous uh bit person uh fans you never know what they'll do so the this kickstarter mm -hmm. for cthulhu wars was long long overdue by peterson games it was due in 2020 and has had a series of updates where it just lets down backers who paid 200 dollars for the fourth printing of the game and they were told not too long ago, yet again, that the game was made and finished, but that they lacked the funds to ship them. And I think this had happened more than once. You know, we've got, no, we don't have the funds. Uh, so they can't even afford to send the finished game to everybody until an anonymous person bailed them out by giving Peterson Games $140,000 to allow the company to ship the remaining games to backers. And this was after they came up with some scheme where it was like, you could pay your shipping fee and then they would ship it to you. Like if you wanted the game bad enough, you could pay like beyond what you already agreed to pay. So this person just said, no, here's 140 grand. Ship this to everybody. Um, but the company did say that they're penning an agreement that would mean, quote, that would mean the biggest shift ever to transpire for us. So maybe they're going to sell the rights or something like that to kind of get out of this area entirely. But it's 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 a 
both fascinating story because of this donation and also the terrible, sad commentary on how shipping can be one of the barriers that just really hurts a company that sounds on paper as if they've had a successful Kickstarter. Yeah, that would be the news for this week. So thank you uh, for, for sharing your expertise, Teos, and thank you to thank our you. listeners. Now we are going to get into our main topic this week. We continue our trek through the Dungeon Master's Guide. We finished Chapter 6 last time as we talked about downtime, yes. And now I'm going to take my Gen Con badge off. Yeah, that's where I'm going. Gen Con's in the past. What's in our future, Teos? Treasure! Treasure is in our future. That's Chapter 7. Chapter 7 tells we game masters who want to run this edition of game of dungeons and dragons what is treasure and how do you use it so let's take a look at what this chapter tells us we start by hearing that adventurers strive for many things including glory knowledge and justice not not justice armin uh, <laughs> justice. i mean would be cool many we might strive for him but uh many adventurers also seek something more tangible fortune strands of golden chains stacks of platinum coins bejeweled crowns enameled scepters bolts of silk cloth and powerful magic items all wait to be seized or unearthed by intrepid treasure seeking adventurers this chapter details magic items and the placement of treasure in an adventure as well as special rewards that can be granted instead of or in addition to magic items and mundane treasure. Hmm. So that's that's it. That's and it. we then immediately dive into, yeah, that's it. Uh, right. We're going to come back to actually everything they talked about there. Yeah. But let's they 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 uh, they present to us types of treasure, mentioning specifically coins, gems, and art objects, basically anything that might be valuable to sell. And we also get tables and types of uh, types of gems, types of art objects, and values associated with them. And you know, and then Sean, we get a little blurb on magic items. Oh, yeah. If I can say, um, I yes. was just, I've been, you know, as we've reread this book, I've been on the lookout for what are the things that I forget because it's kind of a common thing to say, like, oh, I had no idea that was in the DMG, and I had completely forgotten that these tables of gemstones are there. Because I am always doing an internet search for like what is a you know blue colored gemstone or what are gemstones that are uh, very expensive, and it's right here. And I had completely forgotten this. So this is a really useful set of tables that give yeah. different values and and tell you what they look like, mm -hmm. give you great descriptions. Like oh great, I forgot that. Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah, it's especially important if you are doing things on a little different level, going a little deeper in you know using gems or things like that in sort of a puzzle it's like oh i need a red a blue a green and uh, a yellow gem oh i can go to this list right here and and it's there so yeah. you, you're right it, it is it is pretty interesting and then we get a little blurb on magic items uh people love magic items what the book doesn't tell you is that you know what magic items actually change the math of the game entirely uh, generally in terms of making it easier for the players uh, or giving players something more to do with their limited action economy. Uh, so it's generally good to think about that. And so I wanted to talk before we delve into what's actually here 
about what treasure really means in terms of role-playing games and D&D specifically. Would you be willing to take this journey with me, Teos? I'm excited for this. Let's do it. All right. So, uh, treasure is, in many ways, a non-narrative reward for success in in gameplay. Uh, now, gr- great rewards are also narrative uh, pieces, but in general, you succeeded. That's the story reward. You have won, you know, the battle. You have succeeded in infiltrating the lair. Whatever. Now we're going to give you those little things that that you might like that aren't part of the story. And psychologically, these rewards can be very, very fulfilling uh, on a on a like dopamine hit level. Yeah. Right. We just defeated the dragon. Oh, here's this huge horde and every piece of treasure, every piece of magic that you tell me it's oh, cool, cool, cool. And. That's great, and it's a great tool for DMs to get their players excited and and feel good. There's often a long-term consequence to one or more of those things that you've given. So just be aware of that as you balance this idea of short-term gain versus long-term consequences of your campaign. Sure. Because if you give too much, not only does it affect the math of the game, but it can become too rote. Whereas, uh, oh, I rolled randomly on the table, which we'll talk about later. Oh, I've got to give eight magic items from from table C in the DMG. Okay, here we go. And next time, if you only give one, it's it's a letdown. So keep those yeah. things in mind too in terms of pacing of what you, what you get or the beginning uh, of the uh, the first uh, encounter had uh you know the plus 2 magic weapon and then you get to the boss chamber and there's just some coins and everybody's like wait 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 what yep precisely uh giving wealth might seem important mm-hmm. uh but then there is this question well i have 250,000 gold pieces worth of wealth. What can I do with it? Potions of healing. And if you don't have something for them to, if yes, lots of potions of healing. If you don't have anything for them to do with it, all of that buildup of all of that wealth and and its it's magnificence in the game, just sort of, there's a fall off. Yeah. what, what what are your thoughts on this sort of larger scale thought on rewards and treasure? Yeah, I mean, it also ties into what the rest of the game is doing, right? So in, in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, you only did but so many things with your characters. And so when you receive magic items, these were kind of like neat things you could do. And you generally couldn't do them particularly often. They were situational. They might require setup. Um, but they were kind of neat when they came up, right? Like a sword being dragon slaying felt awesome. You might never use it <laughs> to actually fight a dragon. In fact, you may have found it in a dragon's horde, and that was like your dragon fight. Uh, but it was just sort of kind of neat and 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 weird and and just interesting. 
uh, or using something like a ring of invisibility might come with a lot of like DM and interpretation and might not all be that rewarding. And you go to fourth edition. Uh, well, the other thing is I'd say is magic items were, were mysterious back then. Uh, they were surprises and for new players, especially um, you get to fourth edition and the, ma the magic items are in the player's handbook, which in fifth edition, they go back mm -hmm. to being in the DMG as we see here. Uh, and they became expected build points. And because the magic items tended to have more common effects, more standard effects, more reliable effects, players really wanted them to overcome system limitations. And it became less reward and more expected. It's like if you're a parent and you have made a mistake about giving your kids things to where it becomes expected versus special, that's the worst place to be. <laughs> Right, Sean. Mm -hmm. Oh, most definitely, most definitely. Not just for kids, mm. also for adults, uh, as as we have come to find out uh, mm. as as we grow from kids to adults. Um, so they they do sort of gloss over some of these issues, but they don't really talk about that yeah. in terms of running a longer term campaign. So we just want to make sure we get that out there, that rewards are great, um, depending on what your player wants, depending on the kind of campaign you want to run. You may want to think ahead and plan ahead for making these things important in the short term and important in the long term without overwhelming your story, your the mechanics of your game, and so on. Yeah, and one thing I noticed is that the the layout of the paper version, the DMG, you know, as it is printed, there's so many tables, right? That all these tables cause layout issues. You know, you have to think through like how do you sort the words around all these tables? When you read it on DD Beyond in digital form, it's organized differently because they can actually have all mm -hmm. the tables follow after the part where it's attended. It's really interesting to read the two. They, mm -hmm. they read differently because of that. Uh, and so I kind of recommend looking at both to see how that's different. But but D&D Beyond is sort of the more intended read, which I was surprised to see. Um, in yeah. addition to that issue of sort of how it's organized around so many tables, there are a lot of little bits that are buried in these rules that are kind of important. And I wish they were called out at the beginning more clearly because there are big questions that you want to know, not just you know, what's the impact, but what is the expectation around how often I give things out? And this was something I looked at really heavily when I was writing um, the this this product that I have on um, on drive through RPG, um, where I was trying to really focus on evolving magic items, the idea that a magic item would evolve with your character. Mm -hmm. But as part of it, I looked at what is how what is it that, that the DMG is telling us about magic in general? And there are a couple of things. One is it does say, you know, that we get to modify the rules to fit our campaign and different types of campaign call for more or less treasure. And, and that's a really important point that should be front and center of, hey, think about what your campaign should be like. How gritty or super heroic is it? Uh, what is your play style that you want players to do in terms of like, do you want them running out of resources? You know, then tons of magic items won't really help with that, right? Mm -hmm. It'll hinder it. Um, and right. a lot of decisions of whether you can sell magic and you buy magic, you know, those are all really critical parts. 
And then there's a distinction between how you get treasure. So when we're wandering around and we find like two goblins as a random encounter, or we're going through the forest and there's a quick matchup with a handful of goblins, that's individual treasure. These are just individuals that you encounter in some place. But when we actually get to the lair of all the goblins, the place where they store their loot and go back and home, that's when you use hoard treasure. And they're different tables depending on, on whether it's each of these scenarios. Um, and a okay. hoard is encountered on average every five medium challenge encounters. And rolling on the table may or may not produce magic items. It may only produce gold. Um, and all these tables are based on the CR of the monster. Or in the rare case where an NPC is giving a reward and giving us the essentially the treasure, then they suggest using a CR equal to the level of the party, which um, I think you could kind of, if you let the party dictate the story, they could abuse that. <laughs> so don't. <laughs> that's, that's very true. And that's a good point. And that's something I didn't even think about, but the confusion for new DMs in this may say, you know, the the individual versus the layer. If you start giving two 2D one D four magic items to every creature or every creature in an encounter or a group in an encounter, uh, you're go by level two. They're going to have more magic items than they expect to have over the course of a whole tier of play. Um, so yeah, yeah. And also the random the randomness can be a little weird mm -hmm. because you could have like a seventeenth level horde roll and if you roll a one or a two there's no actual there's coins but there's no actual other treasure uh which might be fine but also might not yeah and in general the way these tables work you know is so like you have a, a treasure hoard for challenge level zero to four and you can roll uh you, ro you roll out for coins and you might roll and get you know there's nothing else or there's just some gems or art objects or you might get to roll a certain number of times on magic tables, and those magic tables only go so high when you're rolling on these uh, zero to four challenge labels. So like there's you know a one in a hundred chance that you can roll on uh, table G um, and get a certain number of gems, or I guess it's 98 to zero zero will give you a roll on table G. And, you know that's fairly rare. Mm -hmm. um, and and then, as you right. said, how often do you roll on these tables? And uh, it's not really spelled out well here, but uh, but Andy Perlman and also DM David did research on this. And I've got a link in the show notes to to one uh, blog page on it. And you can find Andy's thoughts on Ian World. Um, so you can look at the show notes if you're really interested. But the, the level one and two are giving you an average of 95 gold per PC third level 190 and it climbs from that and levels 17 to 20 168,000 gold per pc per level is the expectation right so that's a ton of gold as you were saying what do you do with this all this gold that you get um and for magic items the thought is that each level of play each pc will gain one good consumable and once per four levels find one good magic item. And the definition of good is something that affects the math of the game or otherwise has a measurable impact on play that isn't just about fun. In addition, you'll find fun things too. So a quick rule of thumb is a cool magic item every four levels, a cool consumable every level. And the rest is fun, but not you know powerful and, and game affecting. And that should probably really be clear in the DMG as a guideline. 
yeah, that that's the gist of it, right? That that's the whole ball game in terms of as a DM, how do I handle this? And it it, it isn't spelled out. It needs to be pulled out and distilled by smart young uh, game reviewers like like the two aforementioned folks. Yeah, thank you. So uh, yeah, that that's the and um, one thing I noticed about these tables too is that the randomness of the number of magic items can be very, very swinging, mm. uh, especially if you roll. There are certain times where it's like roll a D8 and go from this table. And there's only maybe 20 or 25 items on the table. Oh, and if you wow. roll an eight and then you have to pull. Yeah, it's it. That's yeah. not something that I just it's something that I never quantified. But it always had that feeling where if I was running something off the cuff and I used the table, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to do this randomly. And then even then I would roll. Oh, I got an eight. I'm going to give eight magic items. I'm going to roll randomly. Oh, that no one's there. No, we have no real fighters in the party. I can't use that. Oh, I'm going to roll again. Oh, nobody's going to want that. Oh, no. So like three or four rolls in and I'm, I'm not wanting to give anything from this list. And it always turns into, for me at least, all right, I'm just going to go down the list and I'm going to find the best thing for the group at this time. If you're giving your party things that they're not going to use, it can be fine if you allow for selling or for altering of magic items, but it's sort of that anticlimactic thing that that we've talked about before where it's you get everyone hyped up for what am I going to get that's going to change the game, change my character, change the story. And it's just not that, not yeah. that thing. Uh, and any other thoughts, any, uh, well, I'll just say quickly, Xanathar is moving forward in the section. Yeah. You might think that Xanathar's would come and like add clarity to this, but instead what it really does is create an alternate approach where instead of rolling on these tables, we mm-hmm. can award magic items based on rarity tables so at levels one to four the party is expected to get a total of nine minor items and two major items and this minor major is sort of defined by the level of current play so if you're at levels one to four then the major items are uncommon um and you can use that table as a sort of checklist you're like okay i've got to you know between now and the fourth level i've got to give out two major items which are going to be uncommon you know check it off when i give one out uh, and then they get to level five, and now we're in the next ban, and we can kind of give things out again. I'll be curious to see whether Wizards includes that or changes all of this in some way. I'm I'm very curious to see which well to play it out and what advice they'll give, because I don't know that any of these things, you know, again, all of this is just sort of like a process. And to what extent should a DM really be told, hey, but modify this and think through the, what this means? Yeah. One thing that we probably should have mentioned right from the start that was super important at the beginning of this edition of the game was that we heard both publicly and privately from the developers and designers of this game that you were supposed to be able to play this game Mm -hmm. with no magic items and have the game just as playable as if the characters did. Yeah. And for a lot of us who have been through four editions previously with all their sub editions, we went, really, how's that going to work? We have seen players that have very few magic items 
be very, very different from the same class, same everything else than a player that has a lot of magic items for their character. Or a few really powerful ones. Exactly, exactly. A few game-changing ones. And while we heard this, I never really saw it expressed in a way that was powerful and strong and not that superfluous is the right word that was out there so a dm could point to it to their players and say look this game is going to be fun without magic items or at least you will still be powerful enough to fight what you are supposed to fight even if you don't have a lot of magic items it was never expressed in a way that i thought a dm could rely on that to to trust that going forward and I would have loved to see here that stated clearly. Uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I mean, that was that was my thought there because it makes a big difference. Any optimizer knows that there is a huge difference as to whether my my character can get a staff of power or not. You know, if mm-hmm. that's on the table, if there's a yeah. way I can buy it, uh, use downtime to get it, if it's going to be in an adventure, that's an entirely different ball game including and maybe even especially so for classes that are multi-classed into a caster right just the power that these things can give right if i am a paladin sorcerer who is going to be casting shield a lot and i can get my hand on bonuses to ac that is another ball game that we're going to enter right and and the game is going to be impacted by that ball game because i'm going to now cast that shield yeah. spell and make that rare hit that would have hit not hit and maybe you're not going to enjoy that DM mm-hmm. or players that are around me because I'm unhittable and I just laugh at everything. And if you mm-hmm. let me have a staff of yeah. power, then I mean, I'm going to use that too. And be an yeah, army of one. I mean, use magic device. Use magic device of the rogue uh, class abilities. Can if you give the right magic items, you have just turned that rogue into something yeah. horrifying and and. Wonderful for the player, not so much for the story or the game that you're trying to uh, play. So, yeah, th- this stuff is important to be told, not only for new DMs, but for DMs who have been DMing for a while who may need a, who may not have run into the problem because maybe you didn't play to a high enough level, or maybe it just happened the adventure you were running didn't give a lot of magic items, so you did weren't aware of what happens when when it does uh take place do you want to maybe um go ahead to talk about identifying a magic item and attunement since i find those are also very fascinating we can totally do that let me scroll down so attunement is something that i think was introduced in this edition which is a way Mm -hmm. to sort of limit the number or the amount of powerful items that a person can use at one time so the tunement requires you to take a short rest a successful short rest uh to attune to that item if an item is not attuned you cannot use its magical abilities but you can still use it as its primary purpose so a magical sword still works as a sword even if you're not able to tap into its powerful magic 
a single item can only be attuned to one creature at a time. So no, oh, we're both going to attune to this right. sword and we're going to hand it back and forth to each other to use it on our turns. A creature can only be attuned, of course, to three items at one time. Uh, and a creature can only attune to one copy of an item at a time. So no putting on multiple rings of protection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and when when does attunement end? An attunement ends when the creature, if the creature changes to no longer satisfy the prerequisites for attunement, the attunement ends. If the creature, if the item is more than one hundred feet away from the attuned creature for twenty four hours, the attunement ends. So people forget this one. If a creature dies, the attunement yeah. ends. So your character died and then was brought back via revivify. You're no longer attuned to any of those items. I had, I had so not finish the combat that. without your yeah. Um, hmm. If another creature attunes to the item while you're attuned to it, your attunement ends and that creature's attunement begins. A creature can also voluntarily end attunement by spending a short rest to unattune from an item. Now you can't do that though, of course, if the item is cursed. What do you think of attunement in general? Um, it's fine. I mean, you have to have rules like this to stop shenanigans. And this is basically all about shenanigans prevention. The older system used to be about mm -hmm. slots, right? And third edition and fourth edition right. did this, where it would just sort of be like, hey, and they would come up with arbitrary rules too, right? Like you can only wear two rings, one on each hand. And you're like, I have 10 fingers. You know, unless you had a hand of the mage, which was a dissected hand giving you a third ring slot, you know, that was itself was a magic item. Right. And there is a logic to slots in some ways where, you know, one helmet, that kind of thing. But it does lead mm -hmm. to a lot of magic items because you have a lot of slots, boots and helmet and two rings and, you know, a neck item and a whatever. And, and it was a bit finicky. And it also meant magic items really had to fit those slots in order to be something that was denied to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I think attunement is sort mm -hmm. of better and just saying, hey, some ma magic items are powerful. If it's powerful, it requires attunement so that you can only have up to three of them. I, I think that's generally fine. I don't love short rest being an hour long for many reasons. And this is also one of them in that almost always, a, you know, really, I don't know that I can think of an exception. When I've given out a magic item, whether it's written in an adventure I'm designing or when I'm just doing things as a DM, I kind of want them to be able to use it right now. I don't really want to wait mm -hmm. for a short rest to happen, especially identifying may require a short rest. And then we're talking about two short rests. And I like, I, it's another reason why I wish short rests were different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you we, we've talked about attunement, but then there's a different section on wearing and wielding items, mm. which I think is kind of funny uh, because it uses in two sentences in a row. It uses these two phrases, use your discretion and use common sense. And for me, if you are giving that as a like rule thing, you're you're in trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. Because DM should already be using common sense and using their discretion. So. Yeah, and they're talking about this in terms of what can you wear at one time. And I sort of want the rule to be the rule 
and then I will use discretion from there. So they say, yeah, you really should only wear one head item at a time. But, you know, if you can fit a circlet and a cap, that I guess you could maybe use your discretion. I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to use my discretion because <laughs> sometimes my discretion's bad. Mm. Sometimes my common sense is not common. And the players certainly are not going to use discretion or common sense if they want to use the circle of blasting and the helm of brilliance at the same time. No, they 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 left common sense at the door when they came in to this game. <laughs> so uh I I I want my rules to to be my rules. We had the old I'm going to wield two shields approach in the in the 30 day three days. Shield bashes shield bash is a weapon. So re- now it doesn't say I can't get my my bonus for both, and they're both plus five. Mm. So here we go. Mm. And then I've still got my bashing weapon uh doing you know not a lot of damage, but oh I do get to add the plus five. It's plus five shield, so I'm plus five to hit damage, right? You know, that that sort of thing coming into play. So you may think that common sense works. And then uh, unless there's a rule for it, common sense is not common. And a lot of DMs, you know, it's easy to say, well, DMs just need to say, you know, here, I'm using my discretion. But the problem is a lot of DMs don't feel comfortable right. doing that and, and can be really sure. afraid of saying to their players, no, you can't do that. For a number of reasons, right? I mean, some people aren't really good at arguing, and other people are. And so, if you are a DM who isn't good right. at arguing, you don't even want to start an argument with that person, or you're non-confrontational, or you don't feel really sure right. about yourself. You don't want to deny someone. And we've all seen that at tables. I mean, you've told me a good story about sort of a player at the very beginning going, "Can I?" And you're like, "No." And then the rest of the players later are like, "Thank you for saying no. It was really problematic in the previous table, right?" Like, so many times, more more than I can even count on my two hands, my my two ring holding hands. Um, I've I've had players after I said no to a player say thank you because that would have been the worst encounter, adventure, whatever. But we all got to play, or we didn't have to deal with something because you you did that. And it, it's even more problematic because sometimes DMs are running pre-made adventures that give out the items that are the problem in the first place. So not only is it not their fault that this is there, but then it's their burden to fix a mistake that wasn't theirs in the first place. So it, it becomes a sort of a double-edged sword. The last thing I want to talk about was, was magic item resilience, which I think is in here because in previous editions, we've had the ability to sunder items mm-hmm. or in first edition, if you roll a natural one on your saving throw against say a fireball, then you have to roll saving throws for every single one of your items as you watch your scrolls burn up and your potions boil away and Lord help you. If you have a like necklace of fireballs and you fail a save for that item and all those fireballs go off, it's like the 4th of July in this dungeon, yeah. y'all. So uh, yeah. it's it's interesting that they say items are as durable as their non-magical counterparts and more so. Uh, and they all have resistance to all damage, all magical items, other than potions and scrolls. So they they without saying it, they sort of come out and say, 
don't destroy magic items um, unless you know it's it's really important to do so. Yeah, and I mean AD and D was full of these things uh, where it would uh, you know enchant you into dumping your thing down a well or uh, creatures even through third mm -hmm. edition right creatures that would destroy items that they touch so you know you stab the ooze and your item is gone and it's like your amazing fabled weapon of whatever um it could be yeah. really really sad and i don't know that i want it to be like complete immunity but it is it is something there that i mean i think it could use more than that one paragraph to sort of talk about the implications of, of how attached people are to their items and yeah that's all you can be you could probably write a book on that uh, last but not least, I talk about special features, ways to make your magic items distinctive by giving them backstories. Uh, it's good for the story, and it also can bring out role-playing or, or even mechanical things. I love doing things like, oh, you have a magical sword, and as you attune to it, you hear the the name, whatever, Ragdar the Brilliant in your head. And when you hear that, the sword flames. And then the first time they use it, nothing happens. And uh, why didn't it flame there? And I'm like, what did you hear when you first heard? I don't remember. Well, maybe you're going to need to cast identify again, or maybe you're going to need to do something to remember and then make them say that name before their sword flames. Right? You can have some fun with role playing, with with giving this item, not just a backstory. Backstory is yeah. great. Uh but give it something that actually makes the players do more than just swing the sword or do more than just wield the item to, to make it a part of the process of the game. Yeah, I mean, that could really use a bit here about the idea of how you can make a magic item create interplay between you and the player like that, like what you're talking about. That's a lot of fun, right? When When you... When you can can rely on certain quirks of items, like we had a lot of fun in uh, the Dwarven Forge adventures, the you gain certain powerful magic items as you go through the Dungeon of Doom, and these come with little quirks that that uh, you are allowed. You, you kind of get the freedom of whether you want your personality to be sort of impacted by it because it's doing things like pushing you to be more heroic or push, pushing you to. Um, say certain certain things right and, and it's not commanding you but it's just the fun of being able to work through that um which i think makes for great story i love these tables in here i love the idea of having like you know uh, a uh, suit of armor that's sort of you know always dripping water because it's you know tied to the plane of water in some way um things like that are just are really neat and, and give help you remember that magic items should not be you know you get a plus one weapon let's move on like Let's make it a little more interesting, right? And make it fun. And and that's part of why I liked the idea of evolving magic items is because, and I, and I think honestly it should be something that's discussed here is it's weird when you have like this cool thing you like and then a few layer levels later, you're supposed to kind of throw it away. And, and there are a lot of assumptions in the game of sort of that it's just sort of works that way, right? But really what you'd rather do is is have this sword you know or whatever it is that you're using mean something and have some relationship to you and evolve over time in some way rather than just be chucked right. aside <laughs> yeah and and it also helps with the christmas tree problem of having to keep track of the 72 magic items you're wearing 
uh, if you can somehow tie them all together, either as a set or yeah. your sword also acts if you do this certain thing as a plus one ring, yeah. a ring of protection or you know, whatever, that gives that sword even more meaning and takes away that that idea that you're just wearing all of these things as decoration because that you need to um, to get the benefits of it. Yeah, and Sean, you know, so you know, we've got these a huge amount of space in this section and and in the book itself, really devoted to all of these magic items, and they have really cool, you know, illustrations. You know, I love how evocative mm -hmm. a lot of those are, um, and the magic item design for this edition, I think, is is kind of interesting. I mean, we could just do a show just on that subject, but the game tries to, I think step back a bit from fourth and third edition to be a little more limited in what magic items are are doing um i think as part of that concept you were talking about of of you don't have to have a magic item um so there are a lot of like weapons that don't actually give a plus bonus to hidden damage but they give extra mm -hmm. dice of damage of some type um and things that are a little more situational rather than you know, you're going to use this every single encounter. I think in general, that's good. I mean, how do you feel about how the magic items work in this edition, what the, the examples are like? I think it definitely leans back into the first and second edition days of making them more limited, making them less a part of the math of the game, uh, making them more mysterious and fun even, right? Uh, depending on your definition of fun yeah. <laughs> and not not like with fourth edition not already baked into the math of the game or not as much capable of being put together with your abilities and feats and so on to make something that's outlandishly broken uh, so i i do appreciate that yeah yeah uh yeah, in general. There are a few, right? Darren's Instant Fortress comes up a lot as, as sort of like the uh, explosive power that it has <laughs> to just destroy everything around it. But um, but yeah, in, in general, I agree. And, and they are more interesting and flavorful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like I we're, we're running at exactly where we should be like shutting down. So I'm like tempted to really dig in and then I'm tempted to say, Maybe in another episode, yeah. down the line, we will really dig into magic items since they are such an important part of the game. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even I mean, in there's a, a whole limited role for fifth. Yeah, there's a whole section here on sentient magic items and artifacts. You know, mm -hmm. artifacts are pretty much like AD and D. You know, you have a certain number of minor mm -hmm. and major powers, and you are supposed to sort of just roll on them. I've never found that design satisfying. I always feel like an artifact yeah. should be whole cloth designed to be really interesting. And I don't, but I mean, like these are fine as examples. Not only that. Yeah. Yeah. But we get they some examples. They shouldn't just be built for specifically. They need to be built to, to wrap your campaign around, right? When we did Orrery of the Wanderer, mm -hmm. that's what the campaign's about. It's about this artifact. It's very powerful everyone knows what's or has learns along the way what's going on with it and this is the focus that people are trying to take it from you 
you need to use it in certain ways to to have things done, right? It it should be the focus of your campaign. You know, when you're pulling those things out, if it's just another magic item, it's just another magic item. I'm glad you you brought that up as an example because it is fascinating. I looked at these rules for artifacts. It was it was my job. I think Scott was like, "Hey, we never designed this artifact, even though we talked about its sort of general story concept." And I was like, "Oh right. crap, you're right." So I was like, "I'll do that." And it was right around Christmas. And I remember I was like, well, you know, I don't want to not, I don't want to be like, here goes dad off to his office to design while everybody else is hanging out. So I, so it was a few days before Christmas. So I was like, hey, kids, you want to help me design something? And they were, you know, fairly young then. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, here's the idea, right? Here's what this thing is, which was fun because I got to, you know, here's what an orrery is. But, you know, talking through the concepts, like there's this mm -hmm. concept of time, there's this concept of blah, like what, what do you think the time went to do? And they're like, oh. You know, I should let you like undo a thing you did wrong or, you know, the, and, and they would just talk about these high concept things of what they thought this item should do. And then I'd go back and languageify it into the you know addition and into the proper mm -hmm. codification of it. But and, and I think that's exactly what I would like to see as advice here for artifacts is not rolling these tables, but more. Yeah. What's the campaign story going on? What is this item supposed to do mm -hmm. lore wise, concept wise? Go off of that and i don't know that we need to worry about balance because you can do that like you know just yeah look at the balance of it and make sure it seems fun and worthwhile and right <laughs> yeah it's not x numbers agreed. right totally agreed um right, right i'll just say quickly so Sean, anything else sentient magic um we get some rules that are so so on kind of how i think the good part is how to develop the sentient magic items kind of personality. And there's some steps that you go through and we borrow from chapter four with NPC tables. I think that's all fine. The problem is this conflict concept and it's, it's hitting off of that AD&D uh, famous idea of the magic item sort of being able to push you. But the game just sort of tries to simplify with like contested charisma checks. And then if the item wins, it can make demands. And if we refuse the demands then maybe it can turn off things. I find that to be really dependent on, you know, the character's charisma score for one. Um, I, I don't love it. Um, we get some sample black uh, items such as Black Razor and Whelm from Greyhawk lore, but I, I don't love these rules and the conflict concept. I don't know if you wanted to add anything there. I, I don't really have much to add. I, I agree that it's almost like trying to take something that should be a role-playing uh, thing and and mechanize it in a way that is just a little you it it doesn't go far enough and it goes too far it's mm -hmm. in that weird in between space where it's just as the dm decide how it's going to work work with the player to make it fun if the player doesn't care about role playing it then just forget about it yeah and, let, and let's be clear what we're talking about we're talking about like you know the one ring when you put it on the struggle right. that creates for you no charisma check replicates that. What you want is the player to be invested in right. the role-playing of it and to buy into it and mm -hmm. play off of that, right? And and more so would be something like as simple as, I'm going to roll to see whether you have an event. You do. How does it play out? You know, you role-play this for me, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I and mean, that would be way more fun. I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on on this topic the only, you know, the chapter ends with other rewards, supernatural gifts, marks of prestige, epic boons. We've talked about epic boons a lot. 
the Unearthed Arcana has gone back and forth and whether they're going to use them as capstones or not. It sounds like maybe not. Um, I think they're seeing that we don't love them. I, what I love about this section is that it has great breadth. And so what it does serve as is a nice reminder to DMs of like, hey, give out other things. And it can be totally different, like a title. Just the title may or may not matter in certain situations. Um, you can give them emblems. You can give them parcels of land and they can be removed if they don't do well. Um, you know, uh, just thing like these, this variety is good. Um, it gets a little trickier when you get into like the supernatural type stuff where like a blessing is different than an epic boon is different than, you know, something else. And one of them might be use it four times and the other one's permanent. So, you know, I think that it, the good thing is it's a lot of breadth and the DM can choose what they should use for a particular campaign. And 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 that's good. I, I mean, I like that these are in the other section. So let's dream big. Here's some examples. Put this to use however you want. And it, and it is important to remember, you know, in adventure design yes. and campaign design, it's not all just about magic items. It is about these other kind of cool interactions. For sure. So that is our rundown of this chapter next week we will get to chapter eight running the game Ooh, that's a chapter eight's the perfect time to talk about running your game well we'll find out if it was the perfect time or not uh thank you to all our listeners out there thank you to those of you who came up uh, at gen con when i was at the ghostfire booth or just wandering around and saying that you enjoyed the podcast uh generally they were talking about you know the number one podcast in all the realms uh but sometimes they were talking about us Taos. oh i'm so oh because yeah, you were at the ghostwriter booth that. that makes a lot of sense yeah 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 that's fair it, exactly exactly yep yeah, yep yeah. it was a it was a skewed sample let's yeah, say that's fair uh and, and thank you to those of you who support us via our patreon you're these master of dungeons and the master of the realms. And for those masters of the multiverse, we want to thank you right now. Keith Ammon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King. Sorry, I didn't get the chance to run a game for you. Jim Klingler at AKA DM Prime Mover, uh, Chad Lynch, the Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Samose, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash mastering DND. Where can people find you, Teos Abadia? Alphastream.org. I uh, keep releasing. I've gotten a lot of videos out recently, which is, makes me very happy. And you can find links to all of them mm. there, including one in Spanish on how to use the new translated SRD. Where do we find you, Sean? Yes, I read that to I read that to my family. Uh, you can find me at all the normal social media places: Twitter X, uh, Mastodon, Blue Sky Now. And this, the show is at most of those places as well. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can go to YouTube, and leave us some comments and questions there. Thank you for listening. We have just learned all about rewards. So what are we going to do now? Mm, uh, giving is the best thing. So I'm just going to give things to other people. I am going to give things to other people and then regret it.